five-week series, I think it's five weeks, December, on uh, Christmas with the Apostle John. And we are not going to get out of John 1 because it is uh, one of the most richest chapters in the Bible. There's tons here. Well, hopefully we'll begin to see that. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to read the first five verses today. John 1, 1 through 5. This is the gospel about Jesus. Please listen carefully. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures. Thank you for making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus, who is the word, life, and light. We think we already know him. We think we already know the story. We think we already know the characters. And I suspect the Apostle John will reveal that we think too much and know too little. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus all over again. Help us to come to know him in an entirely new way. Help us to follow him as we never have before. And as always for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this Advent season. Speak through your word this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we're now a little more than halfway through the football season. If you're a college football fan, we're almost at the end, but pros, you got a way to go yet. And that's good news for some, and that's uh, horror for others. Imagine with me for a moment a football team that plays every game on its home field. And since home teams win about 70% of the time, this team would have a tremendous advantage. It would have winning seasons year after year after year. And from approximately A.D. 300 to the year A.D. 1300, the church operated like the home team. They acted like they had home field advantage. The church owned the teams, chose the sides, made the rules, taught the refs, and always had the crowd behind it. At least it thought it did. And while that's not entirely true, as soon as you broaden your perspective to include Asia and Africa, it's obviously not true. But even in Europe, there were pagans and heresies behind every tree, which the church dealt with in incredibly compassionate ways, alternating with harsh persecutions that boggle the mind. But all along, they thought they were the home team. And for the most part, so did everyone else. And that started to fall apart with the Reformation, completely crumbled with the Enlightenment, was banned from the field in modernity, and is now a distant memory lost in post-modernity. And so here in the last month of 2018, everything's changed. Today we play on the opposing field's turf, 
And those who would just as soon have nothing to do with the church are the ones making the rules for our society. They're the ones who own the teams, make the rules, provide the refs, and the crowd is behind them. They find the church to be authoritarian, Christians to be antagonistic, Christianity to be unbelievable, and Jesus Christ himself to be somewhat meaningless. And if you're not sure about that, here's some statistics. Well, I'm just going to talk about percentages so much. There is a higher percentage of active professing Christians in Angola, West Africa, than there is in America. There's a higher percentage of Christians in Korea than Canada. There's a higher percentage of Christians in Fiji than in any country of Europe. The largest mission field in the Western Hemisphere is the United States. And the darkest mission field in the world is easily Western Europe. Even more, I believe, than the Muslim world. In fact, the place we get the most reports of the gospel going forth and the most advanced is actually in the Muslim world today. So if the church is going to carry out its mission of telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have to know what we're up against and how the rules of the game are changing. We must know why the church is a community and then be a community. We must know why Christians are loving and then be loving people. We must know why Christianity is believable and then act like we really do believe it. And we must know why Jesus is not only the most meaningful person who ever lived, we must know why he brings the most meaning to each one of our lives, and we must know why it is Jesus Christ who lives, reigns, and is coming again. And we have to be able to communicate that, to say that in a way that others can understand. And the reality is that's the whole purpose of the Gospel of John. The key verse and the theme of this whole book is found near the end in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. To understand this book, to understand the writing of the Apostle John, we have to get a sense of the big picture. You need to understand that John is writing a story to all the world, to the church, and to you and to me. And it's a story that only John can write. So let's take a moment and look at the Apostle John. As we come to his book, we have to realize it is now A.D. 90, give or take a few years, he is the last of the disciples left alive. The community of seven churches he pastors, situated along a postal road, stands in awe of him. He is John the Elder. An elder is as much a description as a title, because he's at least, as far as we know, over 80 years old. And in a world, you think about the first century, where 40 is getting along, and 60 is ancient, 80 is miraculous, and John is past 80. He's a simple man from a simple place. But what happened to him was not at all simple. Or maybe it was. He's a follower. He's a disciple. Someone Jesus loved. 
someone he trusted. With his own hands, John touched him. And those now tired old eyes had looked into the mystery of Jesus' fine intellectual face. And John has been asking himself for all these years, what did it mean? What does he mean? And at this time in the history of the church, things are starting to get confusing. People were questioning what Jesus said, what Jesus did, who Jesus was. And there's only one apostle left, John. All the other apostles were gone. All the other key members of the first church in Jerusalem, gone. Peter and Paul have been martyred for some 25 years now. All the rest of the New Testament has already been written, but nothing from John. And to stand in the presence of the last living disciple is to realize that he needed to commit to writing as much as he knew before his lips were silenced forever. And so he wrote because they wouldn't leave him alone until he did. He wrote because he wouldn't leave him alone until he did. He wrote because he missed the sound of Jesus' voice so much, sometimes he thought his heart would break. And perhaps he wrote in the hope that through the words of just one of his sentences, he might hear once again the familiar sound of his voice. Matthew, Mark, and Luke had not only been written, they'd been well circulated. Everyone knew the stories they contained by heart. And so John set out to fill in the gaps. He thoughtfully skipped the well-known so he could substitute stories uh, no one had ever heard, stories never written down, stories that he'd been telling and preaching for more than 60 years. And these stories came together by themes as uh, good sermons do, light and darkness, wisdom and foolishness, the misunderstood Messiah. And writing them down and working through them again in his imagination is almost like being back on the road with Jesus. Details come to mind that were long lost, tired feet from long journeys, fear of the Pharisees, the feeling of having his breath taken away by the gleaming words of the Nazarene. And he remembers again and again how the people had misunderstood Jesus' words and works and how after he would make some of his most deeply spiritual pronouncements, the crowd would often completely miss the meaning he would talk about living water, and they could only see a well. He would speak of the bread from heaven, and they wanted lunch. And the essence of John's portrait of Jesus is found in its simplicity. Light, water, bread, seed. Jesus is revealed through the immediate and the tangible. And occasionally, John would have to push himself back from the table to wipe away the tears brought on by the memories that forced him once again into the presence of the Galilean that he loved and longed for and missed with all his heart. So here they are. These are the words, the thoughts, the feelings of the last living disciple, the last person left alive who walked with Jesus. We need to hear them well. In this Advent season, it's time for us to come and sit at the feet of John the Elder and listen to what he has to say about this, this Lord of his, this friend he leaned against at their last meal together 
and whom he's been leaning on ever since, the one John wants all of us to lean on. The one he writes to tell us is Christ the Lord. That's the subject of his book. Now, the reality is this is probably the most relational book in the Bible. Because John doesn't write a lot about doctrine, but he does write a lot about how Jesus related to people. He remembers a wedding where Jesus solved the wine problem and got the host off the hook. He thought of a blind beggar that nobody noticed except Jesus. He pondered Jesus' tender teaching of the Samaritan woman and a tough encounter with a Pharisee at night. And with graphic detail, John takes us on a storybook journey through Jesus' encounters with people. Jesus met all kinds of people. He dined with the rich, associated with the outcasts, had pity on the sinners, helped the needy. At every level, at every station, Jesus spoke the right words at the right time. And he addressed people in such a manner the simple-minded could understand them, but the learned had to stop and think about what he said. Teaching with authority, that was new. People came by the thousands to hear it. They were captivated by his words. And according to the Apostle John, Jesus didn't have to tell people they needed to repent. He just engaged them in a dialogue that exposed their sin, their shortcomings, their mistakes, their mistaken thoughts. And when he removes those masks, he speaks restoration instead of rebuke. He's the gentle shepherd who finds the lost sheep and brings them back into the fold. And so he loves them, and they repent on their own. And as we go through John, we're only going to go through the first chapter and only about half of that. But we're going to see these people that show up. They could be the people in your life, your neighbors, your relatives. That cranky old guy who lives around the corner, he's in John's gospel. The guy at church who still can't see God, Jesus ran into a few of those. The grief-stricken widow, the pregnant teen, your mother-in-law, They're all in John's pages. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And hopefully if we study John, that any student of John will find each time that he returns to this gospel, and I love this is actually my third time, I think, in John. Each time you return to read John, you find that Christ is a little bit bigger. It reminds me of Lucy's experience with the lion Aslan, who's the Christ symbol in C.S. Lewis, uh, his Chronicles of Narnia. At one point, she gazes into his large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan said, Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And so my hope, my prayer this Christmas season as we work our way through the wonders of this first chapter of John's gospel, that you will find Christ bigger. And so, of course, we have to get started. And so we're going to start in the beginning. Verse 1. And the first thing we see is that Christ is the Word. Christ is the Word. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning was the Word. There never was a time when Christ did not exist because the word was is actually in what's called the Greek imperfect tense, which means was continuing. In fact, the entire first verse bears this sense. In the beginning was continuing the word, and the word was continuing with God, and the word was continually God. Or as one person, I think very accurately, although wildly ungrammatically correct, said that Jesus always was wasing. I love that. That's it. Jesus Christ is preexistent. He always was continuing. Now, you can get in this too much, and this reading this can, after a while, give you a headache. And our minds sort of look backward until time disappears, thought collapses, and exhaustion. And all of a sudden, you realize this topic of Christ and, and that he was in the beginning with God. You start to get a sense of the greatness of Christ. And then the apostle says, and the word was with God. Literally, the word was continually toward God. The father and son were continually face to face. The preposition with bears the idea of nearness, this sense of moving close to God. And that's to say there's always existed the deepest equality and intimacy in the Trinity. And again, our minds stagger as we think of Jesus always have continued, having continued, without beginning and without end, in perfect relationship with the Father. And then we get the final phrase, verse 1, and the word was God. And the exact meaning is the word was God in essence and character. He was God in every way, even though he was a separate person from God the Father. The phrase perfectly preserves Jesus' special identity, while also stating that he is God. This is his continuing identity from all eternity. He's God constantly. Now this simple sentence of verse 1 is quite possibly the most profound theological statement in all of Scripture. Jesus was always existing from all eternity as God in perfect fellowship with God the Father. And God's glory dwells with man in the person of Christ. But this is something that no one in their wildest imagination could have fathomed until God made it clear in the life and preaching of Jesus. Again, notice verse 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was with God and was God. And John goes on to stress Christ's godness his deity, his divinity, by explaining Jesus with the use of two very distinct words. One's Hebrew, one's Greek, and they both are translated as the word. To the Greeks, the word, or logos, meant the rational principle, the reason, the logic that holds all of life together. You might say it was the force that kept all order from turning chaotic when someone sneezes. But to the Hebrews, the word would be translated devar. Communicate God's divine speaking. As when God speaks into creation and it just comes to pass. The divine fiat that commands life and light 
into nothing, and then there's life and light. Devar means both word and deed. In the Old Testament, words accomplish something. And thus God spoke the words of creation, the devarim of creation. Let there be light. And the words made the darkness roll back like a scroll. Because in the Old Testament, what God says, God does. It also communicates the words spoken by the prophets, like Jeremiah. We, we read in Jeremiah that his word burned. Jeremiah 5 says, Therefore thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire. And this people would. The fire shall consume them. We hear from the prophet Isaiah that this word spoken by the prophets would not go forth and return empty or void. Isaiah 55, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You've heard me say this many times. God's word is powerful in and of itself. God's written word, the scripture does that. God's living word, the Lord Jesus does that. He is the eternal word. But John doesn't stop there. He also wants you to know that Christ is the life, starting at verse 3. He is the creator of the universe. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The fact of Christ's creatorship, I'm not sure that's a word, but we're going with it, um, is the consistent witness of the New Testament. Colossians 1, for by him all things were created. Hebrews 1, but in these last days he, God the Father, has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through, him, through whom also he created the world. Revelation 4, speaking of Christ. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will... They were existed and created. This word life shows up 36 times in the Gospel of John, more than any other New Testament book. It's one of his most important themes. Now, those early verses said the word was with God and was God and all things were made through him. The second person of the Godhead, the word, who's the subject of the Gospel, is the source of all life in the universe. Not merely does he possess life, but life itself is found in him and comes through him. And Jesus said in John 5, for as the Father has life in himself, so he's granted the Son also to have life in himself. All life is in Christ, including physical life, but John is especially referring to spiritual life. The expression he uses the most is eternal life. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So we don't think of eternal life uh, merely in terms of its quantity, but also its quality. It's the life that God has lived in us now. It's not just the prolonging of this earthly kind of life, but the heavenly life that begins in us the moment we believe on Jesus, and it never ends. Unending years from now, the life that is in God will still be ours in and through Christ. 
And that means we can trust such a God with anything and with everything. He is our creator. In him, we find life. Do you trust him? Have you entrusted your life to him? Considering the greatness of Christ, nothing else makes sense. Finally, John wants us to see that Christ is the light. So he's the word, he's the life, he is light. Verses 4 and 5. Here we have the metaphor of Christ as light, stressing both the revelation and the rejection of his love as it came into the world. In clearest terms, Christ is described as light, starting at verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the first thing light does is reveal. You walk into a dark room, what's the first thing you do? You turn on the light in order to see. It's what Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Man's living in spiritual darkness, ignorant about God, living in superstition. And so Jesus came to reveal God. John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The late PCA pastor, James Montgomery Boyce, said that Jesus is revealed as the one who knows God the Father and who makes him known. Before Christ came into the world, the world was in darkness. The world did not know God. Christ came as light shone before men. Then men had the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But light doesn't just reveal. It also warms. To walk in darkness is to walk in sin and sadness and brokenness. But the light of Christ warms the heart so that it's changed. The spiritual transformation is what Jesus meant in John 12. He said, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And the emphasis here is on Jesus Christ being the spiritual life-giving light going out to a dark world. The thought that our Lord being spiritual light should give us insight into his loving attempt to reach the world. Where light goes, darkness is dispelled, and it reveals the true nature of life. No place with the slightest crack can withstand the presence of light. The light shines in the darkness. It shines continually in the darkness. Christ is continually bombarding every corner of our hearts of darkness through the work of his Holy Spirit, in nature, in our conscience, through the scriptures. But then there's this odd ending. It's all been so positive up to now. And it's not well received. The majority rejects the light. Verse 5 concludes, and the darkness is not overcome it. The light is met with tremendous resistance. The darkness tries to overcome it. Think about that. The one who said, let there be light, the one whose love constrained him to shine a saving light through creation and conscience, the one who mercifully sheathed his life in a human body so that he could uh, bring light to men, the one who set aside a special people for himself to be light to the nations, was rejected. 
Yet today he's still the light, continues to pry his way into hostile hearts. And yet sometimes those hostile hearts are uncomfortably close. So I have to ask, do you know Jesus? Do you know what Jesus is like? Jesus came to reveal God to you this Christmas. Do you know God by personal acquaintance, by his presence within your spirit? Jesus came to bring us into fellowship with God as worshipers in spirit and in truth. So whether you are with or without Christ, meditate on Christ being the light, and you'll become more aware of being loved. More aware of being loved. John tells us that God has spoken a powerful word of recreation, of salvation. And so the incarnation happens, a word spoken and done, and it's pronounced in syllables of flesh. This word of God became flesh. To use Paul's expression elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, this would have been foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. This is unbelievable. But it's God coming to dwell with man in glory in a way that's so very unexpected. This introduction to John tells us of the speaking of that word. The rest of the book will tell us of the deeds of the one who was the living word. And for John, the truth of this will be demonstrated in Jesus' life. What Jesus says will always be reflected in what Jesus does and vice versa. He will do something like open the eyes of the blind and then speak the deep truth that he is the light of the world. Jesus will tell his sorrowing friends that he is the resurrection of the life and that word will be validated as Lazarus comes hobbling out of the tomb. Jesus feeds 5,000 and then tells them that he is the bread of life. What he says is always validated, illustrated, and fulfilled in what he does. For he is the word and deed of the Father. When he speaks of being light, the darkness is always there. When he speaks of being life, a dead man's nearby. When he speaks of being wisdom, he's usually talking to the foolish. You had to know that a hard part was coming. So here it is. Because there are days when we are the ones in darkness, when we are the foolish when we are dead and we need words of life and light and wisdom. And those who are most profoundly aware of their own sin and their own need and who in consequence most deeply feel the wonders of the grace of God that's reached out and saved them, even them, even you, even me, are those who are most likely to talk about themselves as the objects of God's love in Christ Jesus. Christ wants us to grow into his disciples and grow away from our sin and leave behind our foolishness. And he wants that because we are his beloved, the one so loved by him that he will change us and transform us by grace alone. You remember John, who's writing, saw himself as the son of thunder, who would later become the apostle of love. This response isn't arrogance. It's brokenness transformed by amazement. He's simply overwhelmed by Jesus' love for him in the midst of his sin. 
we need to be overwhelmed by Jesus' love for us in the midst of our sin. A shallow understanding of how much we, were, we are loved and are continually loved makes us weak witnesses for Christ. We need to believe not just that the gospel is true, but that it is true for me, that it is true for you, that it is true for us. That's what makes us passionate believers who've been transformed by the love of Christ, who will have that same love overflowing from us to our families, our neighbors, our bosses, our students, even those nosy people who sit next to us at church. You don't have to look around. Some of you need to stop. But simply put, John is aware of how great Christ was. He's aware of the light he brought shown into the darkness, not just in the world, but in us. He's aware of the love that he had for John. And it leaves us with the question, are you really aware of how great Christ is, of the light that he brings into your life, into your darkness, and the love that he has for you? This Advent, the Apostle John is going to do all that he can to make you aware of Jesus in your life, what he says and what he does in you and for you and through you and, if necessary, in spite of you. That's the next four Sundays. So think about that. Perhaps you should pray about that. Take a moment to do that, and then I will close. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our Lord, thank you that you've given us a love story in the Gospel of John, a story that reminds us that we're sinful men and women who desperately need a Savior, and a story that reminds us that we have a Savior who comes to save desperate men and women. Thank you for showing us that Jesus came to save sinful, broken, unlikely people like us, and he came to save us from our sins. And Lord, if there is anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, we would ask that by your Spirit, you would give them the faith they don't currently have. Give them the ability to believe and help them with their unbelief. And whatever road they travel, may Jesus meet them there. This Advent, we look forward to his coming. We look forward to his saving. We give you great thanks for sending Jesus Christ, who is the Word, life, and light. And this morning we pray in the name of the King who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.